Today's episode is brought to you by Jenny Zhang's My Baby First Birthday, a poetry collection that examines innocence, asking us who gets to be loved and who has to deplete themselves just to survive. In these poems, Zhang writes about accepting pain, about the way we fetishize womanhood and motherhood and reduce women to their violations, traumas, and body parts. She questions the way we feminize and racialize nurturing and live in service of other people's dreams. Jenny Zhang, says Ariana Raines, makes me feel alive. Her rage and appetites are unslakable. Dorothy Lasky adds, Jenny Zhang will always be one of the most important poets writing today. She consistently and constantly stretches the lyric to its necessary and best intentions, telling it where it only may dream or dare to go. My baby first birthday is out now from Tin House. Today's episode of Tin House Live is a craft talk that Rebecca Mackay gave at the 2019 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. Mackay's last novel is The Great Believers, which was finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction and the National Book Award in Fiction. She gave a talk called The Ear of the Story that focuses not on a story's point of view, but on something that is far less discussed, the flip side of point of view. Who is the story's implied listener? She goes on to explore what the political and artistic implications of glossing a culture or setting might be in order to orient a reader not familiar with that culture or setting. And she ultimately talks about questions that came up for her writing The Great Believers, a novel set in the gay culture of 1980s Chicago. Rebecca has been on the show before as a guest for her earlier absolutely remarkable short story collection, Music for Wartime, which you can find in the Tin House archives at tinhouse.com podcasts. Now enjoy Rebecca Mackay's craft talk, The Ear of the Story. Please join me in welcoming Rebecca Mackay. Thank you. So I'm always really torn when I do this kind of thing um, between talking about craft and talking about the bigger, broader issues of content and politics and art and art being a radical act and let's burn it all down and claim the world and reclaim our rage and our joy. Um, But I tend to be a craft wonk. And in part, that's because it's one thing to tell someone to write and to fight Um, But there are weapons that we need to do that well. When I talk about craft, um, it is so all of us can sharpen our swords. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk about an element of craft, but it is one that does have political implications. We're going to leave those to the side for a while, but by the end of the talk, we're going to be getting into them. Um, So we talk all the time in fiction, and to a certain extent in other genres, about point of view. Are we writing from a first, second, or third person point of view, limited, omniscient? In poetry, you might talk about the speaker or the voice. We might also talk about the point of telling, which if that's not a term you know, means from what distance is this story being told? We're telling it as if it just happened or as if we're looking back on it years later with greater wisdom. There is a flip side to all of this, and it's one that I have not heard nearly enough conversations about, 
Um, and it's my mission lately to get writers thinking about this facet of narration, which is often when we incorporate subconsciously. When it's off, though, it can derail an entire piece. And there are times when we do need to think about it consciously as readers and as writers. There are several terms for this concept. I'm going to throw you some literary theory in a second. Um, my own term for this is the ear of the story. Um, I feel like it's a little simpler than some of the literary theory terms that are out there. In other words, to whom in theory, within the framework of the piece, is the story being told? If that makes instant sense to you, that's great. If it doesn't, don't worry, because I'm going to spend the next 50 minutes explaining. So we're going to be on the same page. Um, I'm going to give you an example before I say anything else. So today, on your way out of here, Lance spills coffee on his shoes. It's really embarrassing for Lance. Um, Garth Greenwell is passing by, and he takes a video of it, and he puts it up on Twitter. Garth would never do anything like this. I'm just, okay, well, okay, fine, all right, okay. Okay, so you get back to your dorm, and someone who lives on your hall wasn't here at this lecture. And they say, how was it, what did I miss? And you're gonna say something like, oh my God, did you see the thing that went up online? The lectures were fine, but then Lance spilled his coffee and Garth Greenwell filmed it, right? It's about what you would say. So later tonight, you are talking to your partner or your best friend or your roommate on the phone. And your partner says, did anything interesting happen today? And you're gonna say something like, oh we, yeah, we had some craft lectures this afternoon and they were fine, but then on the way out, Lance, he's the guy who runs the whole program. He spilled coffee on his shoes and there's this fiction writer here, this famous fiction writer, and he took a video and he put it up on YouTube. It's the same story, you're just using a little bit different language. So this weekend, you're Ubering back to the airport. And for some reason, you want to tell this story to your Uber driver. And you say, I was at this conference for writers. Um, it's like for people who want to write, we're all practicing. You know, I write fiction, whatever, working on books and stories. It's on the campus up there at Reed College where you picked me up. And actually, we had this video go viral of the program director spilling coffee on his shoes. Um, this, you know, that's not normally what we do there. Normally, we're workshopping, but it's this thing that happened. Um, by the way, do not ever mention to your Uber driver that you're a writer. That's a really bad idea. Okay, if for some reason you were trying to tell this story to someone from, let's say, medieval France. You have time traveled there, and you really have to tell them about Lance spilling the coffee. You're going to say something, you're going to have a lot more work to do. Like, you probably need to explain what coffee is, um, what phones are, what YouTube is, or Twitter, where Oregon is. Um, or maybe you leave all that out of it, and you say, a man spilled a drink on his shoes, we all laughed, and you, you keep it at the element that they can relate to, right? In any event, the point of view in all these scenarios is the same. It is you. First person singular, the person who witnessed this happening on this day and time with a fairly similar amount of remove. You found it funny. You witnessed it. Your point of view hasn't changed. The reason that your language has changed is that the ear has changed. You are calibrating the story you tell. I, you can go back to your dorm and say Lance, and everyone knows who that is to your spouse on the phone, you say the program director. To the Uber driver, you, you might say this guy, the guy in charge. 
you are making those decisions, and we do this constantly. You are constantly calibrating what you do. If you've ever spoken to someone who, who gets it wrong, it's really disconcerting, where they'll talk about their friends as if you know who they are. They'll be like, well, Sarah told me. And you're like, who the hell is Sarah? I always, when I was a kid, I would find it really, really alarming. I still do. When people just talk about their mom and say mom. Like, mom called, and she's not my mom. Why are you talking about her? Okay. Um, so we do this if we have social sense. We calibrate. So I'm going to get technical here for a minute, and I'm going to give you the literary theory part of it. And this is on your handout. Um, one thing you know if you've studied literary theory is that literary theorists do not agree with each other ever. They have different terms for things. So these are not like terms you didn't learn that you were supposed to learn in 11th grade. These are what some people call them, and then I'm going to give you a different thing. It doesn't matter. It matters if you're doing it. It doesn't matter if you have names for it. Make sense? Okay. Um, so originally within literary theory, there was some talk about, you know, just some, these are some basic terms, enunciati. So coming from enunciation, usually a named person or entity to whom a piece is literally being addressed. So for instance, in Keats's Ode to a Nightingale, the nightingale, who is rather unlikely to ever read the poem, is the enunciate, right, being addressed. Quite different from the literal audience. Okay. Um, and we might have a narrate, someone who isn't being addressed necessarily by name, not in that sense, um, but someone or some group of people to whom the story is within the text, within the context of the piece being narrated. So think of Emily Bronte in Wuthering Heights saying, reader, I married him. She is acknowledging a reader. Not all texts do that. She is narrating it to the reader. Um, there can be a lot of other ways we do that. We're going to break down a lot of them. Does that basic concept make sense? Okay. So, so far, so good. Here's the, the deep stuff. My terms are coming here from the narrative theorist Peter J. Rabinowitz, who teaches at Hamilton College. He's one of many people to break this down. I like the way he's done it better than others. This will be 30 seconds of your life, and then you can forget about it. Um, actual audience is the term he's using for literally the book-buying public or the poem-reading public who is literally likely to do this. So then, you know, your Aunt Edith has picked up this book in the bookstore and is reading it. She is the actual audience. Um, the authorial or hypothetical audience is the hypothetical audience for whom the text was composed. In other words, who do I think I'm writing for, right? Like, my hypothetical audience, I'm picturing maybe that ideal reader out there. I'm imagining a certain type of reader. I'm imagining Barack Obama picking up my book. I'm imagining all of my exes weeping tears of despair, right? Um, right. That's my, that's my hypothetical or authorial audience. Who am I aiming it at? Like the, you know, the awards committee, my workshop, right? Okay. Versus someone found it on the bus, and now they're the actual audience, and I never intended for that person to see it. Okay, within the work, um, he breaks it down further. You can have an ideal narrative audience. So the audience for whom the, the narrator wishes they were narrating. Um, this is tricky. The best example I can think of is someone like um, Nabokov's Humbert Humbert in Lolita, who wishes that he were narrating to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury who are going to find him sympathetic, understand what he did. And he's talking to us as if we're going to be on his side, right? Versus the actual narrative audience, those to whom the narrator is actually speaking. 
Um, in Lolita, the idea there is that actually um, the narrative audience is the people for whom the framing narrator, if you remember, there's like a framing narrator who's found this text in the prison cell. His name is John Ray, Jr., PhD, and he's presenting this lurid text. So we're actually those people. That's a complicated one. Um, don't worry about any of that. If that's a muddle, don't worry. You can read about it further if you want to. Um, this is all in Rabinowitz's 1987 book called Before Reading Narrative Conventions and the Politics of Interpretation. Um, so um, I'm not making fun of him. It's just a very, it's not the kind of thing we write. Um, so, okay. What I want to talk about is specifically narrative audience and really specifically actual narrative audience. I don't see quite that distinction between ideal narrative audience and actual narrative audience that he does. The, what I'm interested in is the role we are cast in as we enter a text. The agreement that we enter into when we enter into a text. So I'm reading a sci-fi book and this author is talking to me as if I already know this planet and these spaceships. And I pretend on some level to be a person who knows this planet in these spaceships. I'm reading a text that says, listen up, girlfriends, here's whatever. Okay, I'm not your girlfriend. I could be a dude. I could be, a, you know, but for the purposes of this text, you're speaking to me conversationally. You're calling me girlfriend. That's my relationship to the text that I have entered into by reading. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so... What's important here is not to parse these things or to label these things, as I said. The important thing is that you've chosen on some level, as a writer, you've chosen consciously who you want that audience to be, and you are using that audience wisely and consistently. You are using that tool. Um, I'm going to give you one more example before we get in here um, to some, some examples on the page. This is an example um, from a student of mine who um, is writing a wonderful YA novel. It's a, it's a YA novel that speaks to her own heritage, which is Muslim American. And we noticed as we workshopped that in some situations, she was explaining what a word meant, what a kind of food was, what a certain holiday was, why she wore her scarf a certain way, all those things. In other cases, she was simply presenting them as if we already knew what they were, maybe giving us a little bit of help so we could understand if in case the actual audience didn't know, but treating us like someone on the inside. And that inconsistency was a problem. It made those explanations stick out. It made it feel like you're glossing this culture for us. Why are you doing that? Other times we're going, wait, now I don't know what you're talking about. Which one is it? Um, which one, where are we supposed to be? What she ultimately arrived at in her revision was something that stayed completely off the page. This is a completely backstage decision, the kind of thing that no reader would ever know. She made the decision that in her mind, in some abstract way, her narrator, because this was a first-person story, was narrating this to her freshman year college roommate. So she had this sense of, okay, I'm telling it with a little bit of distance, not too much. There's my point of telling. Um, there's a conversational tone that's appropriate, that's going to stay consistent with this being her roommate. And her roommate, she decided in this scenario, knows her, knows a bit about Muslim culture from her. Maybe it's November of freshman year, but is not from a Muslim background. 
That helped her keep this really careful calibration. Everything she was explaining, everything she wasn't explaining, did that fit with this one directed tone? Now, she could have made completely different decisions. She might have had a decision about, well, I don't care, you know, I don't want to write a book that is not for people like me. I don't want to write a book that opens itself up in that way. I don't want to write a book where I have to gloss my culture. I'm not going to write that kind of book. In this case, she wanted to. That was part of her goal for her book. So it made sense. But the main thing there, the, the main important factor was the decision that she made that allowed her to measure every narrative choice against that. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So I want to take us through some examples here starting with a really overt second person. When there is a second person in a story, it's so obvious that there's a you that we are supposed to become. It becomes much less obvious in a story that kind of just seems to float freely and, and exist on its own. Um, so I want to kind of walk you there through a few different examples. Um, so this first one on here is Lori Moore, How to Be an Other Woman. And this is from her collection Self Help, um, which... The great thing about if you ever teach self-help to undergrads or high school students, they all write all their stories in second person for the rest of the year. It's the coolest <laughs> trick. Um, okay, this is from the, not from the very beginning, but of how to be an other woman. After four movies, three concerts, and two and a half museums, you sleep with him. It seems the right number of cultural events. On the stereo, you play your favorite harp and oboe music. He tells you his wife's name. It is Patricia. She is an intellectual property lawyer. He tells you he likes you a lot. You lie on your stomach, naked and still too warm. Okay, this is not just like dear reader. This is very, she's telling you that this is your scenario. She's making it very specific. Um, it's funny because she doesn't, it, you know, she, the, a lot of this essay is also kind of in the imperative um, where it's, it's telling you what to do, do this, do this, um, as are several other stories in there. Um, so we are being cast as this person. It almost feels to me, and perhaps you'll agree, that really, in many ways, the ear of this story is the self. That this is a second person that is directed back to the self in a very, it, you'd have to read the whole thing, I think, to form an opinion on that. The way that, you know, within five minutes of checking into your empty dorm room, you were probably talking to yourself in the second person as well, right? We do that. And it feels very much like that's what's happening here. At the same time, we, the narrative audience, is still being drawn in and implicated in this way, being told that the story is about us. I have another example here. I know emotions are running hot and cold on Juno Diaz right now, so I kind of put this down my list a little. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but very specific example. You have a girlfriend named Alma, and then it gets sexually explicit right away. It is putting us in that situation, talking to us like, you know, you, you are a Dominican man with a girlfriend named Alma. Here's what you want. Um, and that's the role we're cast in. There are times when we could have more of a blank slate you. My best example of this is the choose your own adventure stories that you might have read as a kid. Um, you, you know, it, it doesn't say, you know, you're sleeping with a guy, his ex-wife is named Patricia for several reasons, but, um, um, it doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say you're a 12-year-old boy named Jake. You have a dog named Rover. You um, it just says you. Picture yourself here. What are you going to do? And you as a kid are picturing you as a kid in that book. Um, that's rarer in adult situations, in adult, in adult, adult situations, um, adult narratives. 
Um, um, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, I think, is one bizarre, postmodern, wonderful example of this. It begins, you are about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And then you have all kinds of adventures, but you is not made terribly specific in that same way. We could have some other kinds of second person. I want to acknowledge that. Um, we could have you know, this, this idea of the, the enunciatee. Um, we could have something that is directed you know, not to a you that seems like the self, but sort of, you know, dear Alfred, here are all the ways you broke my heart. Now, the question in there, are we really Alfred in that story? Or are we really eavesdropping on the thing being written to Alfred? But I want to acknowledge that that's another way of doing second person. Lydia Davis here, if you have never read Letter to a Funeral Parlor, it's magnificent and weird. Um, it starts with, dear sir, I am writing to you to object to the word cremains, which was used by your representative when he met with my mother and me two days after my father's death. And it, what follows is, I think, honestly, a letter that she literally wrote to a funeral parlor and then published, I kind of... It, think she actually did that. Um, so are we the sir in this situation? Are we her? Are we eavesdropping? I'm not sure. But when there's an enunciatee like that, um, we're entering into a different kind of relationship with the second person. Um, there's a decision to be made then if we're writing to an enunciatee, to a certain person who's theoretically out there, who theoretically, even if it's not the literal narrative audience, the relationship we're entering into, to get back into that theory, it might be that narrator's ideal narrative audience, right? Lydia Davis in that is ideally writing to the funeral director. But at the same time, actual narrative audience, we're not being cast as him, we're sort of being invited in more as eavesdroppers. So maybe the actual narrative audience is eavesdroppers in that case. There are times when, when this happens, when the, when the you is an enunciatee, when the, when the you is someone being addressed, the decision you have to make then is, do you tell the you everything? This can get really awkward, where it's like, dear Alfred, I have not spoken to you since you broke my heart by dumping me the night before senior prom and taking my best friend instead. Alfred knows what he did, <laughs> right? Like, why do you have to tell him that? It, doesn't, it rings false at a certain point. Um, so do you do that or do you kind of stealth gloss it in, you know, Alfred, okay, I know we haven't spoken since prom, but listen, and you kind of weave it in there more casually. Um, there are times when the addressee, the enunciatee, the you of the story, um, is someone who only, it's very clear that it only exists in the narrator's imagination. It's not literally being addressed. Maybe because that person that's being written to or spoken to is dead. Maybe because they're not physically present. And here's where I will not sing like Ray Charles, but the lyrics of You Don't Know Me, um, actually written by someone named Cindy Walker. So we, we know this song, right? You give your hand to me and then you say hello and I can hardly speak, my heart is beating so, and anyone can tell, you think you know me well, well you don't know me. It's, you know, and I'm, I'm just a friend, that's all I've ever been, because you don't know me. The idea there being the person to whom this song is being sung is not listening to the song. We are listening to the song. Okay. All the second person theoretical stuff is going to go out the window in a second, so if you're going, I'd never write in the second person, and this is too much, don't worry about it. Um, but what I wanted to walk you into here is more of this sense now of audience, this sense of implied audience, this sense of the ear of the story. 
So there are times when, and this is really the meat of what I want to say here, there are times when that imagined audience, that imagined ear, is made overt. Not by telling us our name or telling us we had sex with a guy with a wife named Patricia, but simply a you. So we might have something like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Paul Revere's Ride. It starts off with, listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. So that's the last time, I think, that the children are mentioned in this poem. And I don't think that he believes his actual audience to be comprised literally only of children, right? I think he probably understood that most of his readers were going to be adults. So then why is he calling us children? Casting us as children, like, and it's kind of the feeling of like, gather around, it's story time, everybody. And I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna pass things down that your elders know. You probably are younger because you, you weren't there. He's writing it a bit after, right? I'm going to lay some wisdom on you. Um, and then we kind of, you know, that's our relationship to the poem. It's like, okay, I, I'm sitting cross-legged on the rug and I'm ready to listen, right? We have, I'm not going to read it here, but we have, I have the opening of Lolita Nabokov um, specifically for the ending of it. You know, he's, he's talking, it seems like to himself, and then said, basically turns to the audience, breaks the fourth wall and says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, exhibit number one is what the seraphs, the misinformed, simple-winged seraphs envied. Look at this tangle of thorns. It's not just the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, though, there. It's the look as well. That breaks the fourth wall, too. Right? He's talking to us. This is just a really awesomely weird example. Um, this next one, Larry Heineman, Paco's story. And the thing is that you need to understand before I read this, there's no one in the book named James. There's no James. James is never explained. It just goes like this the whole time. So here's how it goes. Let's begin with the first clean fact, James. This ain't no war story. War stories, and he goes, blah, 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 blah. It's some really popped up prose. But that's the way of the world, James, or so the fairy tales go. We are James when we read this book for a, 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 no apparent reason. I think it's the most delightful thing. I think it's, it's wonderful to be called James. Um, okay. Um, we can have just a kind of you, like yeah, right? Um, we have J.D. Salinger, you know, to whom is Holden Caulfield narrating The Catcher in the Rye? Well, it's conversational, it's confessional, right? He's not talking like he would to one of his teachers. He's not talking like he would to his parents. He's telling us embarrassing things, but he's also posturing a little bit. Um, and we get the if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like. I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. It doesn't, it's not quite breaking that fourth wall in the same way, right? It's not calling us James. It's not calling us children. It's not calling us the jury. It's just you. But that you has certain components to it. It has an intimate feel. It has a chummy feel. It feels like he's talking to someone maybe his own age or a little bit older. And when you enter into the catcher in the rye, that is your role. So here's where I want us to actually talk about fully third-person narratives. Things that you'd say, okay, yeah, this is great, but I'm not writing a second-person narrative. I'm not even writing a first-person narrative, where with a first-person narrative, those questions of, well, yeah, but who's, who are they talking to? They might come up a bit more. 
Um, you have a first-person narrative. Does this person talking like to a friend, talking like to an authority figure, talking like to someone who knows all this stuff already, someone who doesn't know all this stuff already? What about just a floating third-person narrative? Um, or, um, and I think, actually, I think that the Curtis Sittenfeld example here, I think that it's actually first person, but the first person doesn't even come into it here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this to you, this passage. And I, I, I really do want kind of audience interaction on this. Um, the conversation we're going to have here is, what are we presumed to know? And what are we not presumed to know? Okay? So this is the opening passage of her short story, Show, Don't Tell, which is about, well, I won't tell you what it's about because you're not supposed to know that. Okay. At some point, a rich old man named Ryland W. Peasley had made an enormous donation to the program, and this was why not only the second-year fellowships he'd endowed, but also the people who received them were called Peasleys. You'd say, he's a Peasley or she's a Peasley. Each year, four were granted. There were other kinds of fellowships, but none of them provided as much money, $8,800, as the Peasleys. Plus, with all the others, you still had to teach undergrads. Okay. Getting the sense here, this, this is, and the title show don't tell, it is about a creative writing MFA, right? Okay. What is explained to us here as if we didn't know it? You can just shout stuff out. The reason why they're called Peasley is kind of implied that you're familiar with the name Peasley, but like, you don't know the history behind it. Yeah. Yeah, you might or might not be, but like, you're familiar with at least the concept of um, the, you know, yeah, maybe you're saying like, well, this is why they're called Peasleys. I don't know if you know. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Anything else that we are, um, anything that is explained to us as if we didn't know it? Yeah, who Peasley was. Yeah, the amount of money, the other scholarships, and kind of the, the details of it. You'd have the other ones you had to teach, this one you don't. Okay. What are we assumed to know already? <laughs> yeah, that's you teaching undergrads is something you'd want to avoid. Okay. Yeah. Right, what, yeah, what kind of fellowships we're talking about here? We're supposed to kind of know, kind of talking midstream already? Yeah, the program, which program, what kind of program, right? Um, yeah, so, no, she's giving us enough that we can figure this out even if we don't know it, right? Um, everyone in this room is a writer, so you have some background here, but if you gave this to someone vaguely familiar with higher education, they could figure it out pretty fast. We're talking about graduate program here. Um, she ends up writing about a, a very thinly veiled version of the Iowa Writers Workshop. And the idea is it's the program that everyone knows about, the one everyone's seen from the outside. You probably know it about it already. So, sh so you know, I'm going to tell you some other stuff. So this all leads me to the question of who within this narrative have we been cast as? Probably not plumbers, right? Maybe we're writers ourselves, and we're familiar with it, or maybe we're just a friend of hers, and we've heard a lot about her program. But we're familiar with higher education. We're, we have a vague familiarity with the writing world, whether on our own or through our friend. 
and and we're interested in this. It seems it almost seems like she's answering questions that we've asked, right? They're like, that's why they're called Peasleys. Oh, of course. Oh, okay. Um, when Peasleys, of course, don't exist, right? So you know, this is something that you know it seems to float freely. It seems to just exist. She's just narrating, right? At the same time, along with point of view, there is a very definite ear. There is a very definite intended authorial audience. Intended, sorry, not authorial audience, narrative audience. This is why I don't use those terms because they all sound the same. There's an ear. <laughs> There's an intended ear. Okay. Um, I would imagine that if we had Curtis Sittenfeld up here, she might say that she never considered this for a second. This might have been tremendously subconscious for her, the way she calibrated this. Or she might tell us that actually she thought about it quite a lot, that she revised to this end, um, that she really went back and forth between explaining the whole program as if we never heard of it before and talking like we were in it ourselves. I don't know, but for me, I'll say a lot of it happens subconscious until it doesn't, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. One of the things that Sittenfeld is doing here is introducing us to a certain culture, a certain place with its own set of rules, a place where those people know the rules and that we are fundamentally outsiders to, if nothing else, because she's made up the program. Um, there is very likely um, to be, well, I'm going to say that this first. She's making decisions about how much to speak to us as insiders or outsiders in that culture, how much to gloss things for us. Of course, that becomes much more complicated when we are talking about ethnic cultures, when we are talking about national cultures, when we are talking about religious cultures. This is where things are gonna get political in a minute. There is very likely going to be, in any case, some distance between your actual audience and your narrative audience. You are writing about Minneapolis because you grew up there, and you don't have the assumption that all of your literal audience knows Minneapolis. Right? You're writing about a dentist. Maybe you are or you aren't, but you've done research on dentistry and you don't assume that all of your readers are dentists. This is going to happen everywhere. But of course, in, you know, when we're talking broader, more cultural implications, it becomes a more fraught issue. Sometimes it is even that you're writing about a wholly imagined world. You are writing fantasy. You are writing slipstream. You are writing sci-fi. Literally none of your readers is from that planet. Right? There's no one who is an insider that you can say, well, I'm only writing, I'm only writing for people who know this. There, there isn't anybody, right? If I have invented, if I have invented the restaurant I'm writing about, um, or if I'm sure that most of my audience is not familiar with the actual right, restaurant I'm writing about, I have this broad spectrum of choices to make. I could start, I could go with the diner in town was dingy and bug infested. And Reverend Blackburn, the Methodist minister, always sat in the same corner booth. I'm filling you in. Or I could start the story with, the Rev was in his usual booth down at Mary's, and so were the Roaches. Right? And there's a lot of space in between those two. So we're constantly making that calibration. In neither case do I assume that you have been to this restaurant that I just made up in my head. It's how I'm treating you. It's how I'm addressing you that is the issue. So I know that Ingrid is addressing this further in a lecture um, later this week, the, real, the more theoretical implications of this, of writing for a white audience, writing for you know, different audiences. And I think that I'm really interested to hear what she has to say on the broader theoretical levels. Um, and I think that ultimately, 
the most important thing is that you have thought hard about that relationship between actual potential audience and narrative audience. Who am I literally, who's literally likely to read this? Do I care? Who is ideally likely to read this? And then who within my text is being addressed? Am I talking to you like you know this culture? Am I glossing this culture for you? At what expense? Why? And does it stay consistent? Those decisions have to be up to you. To what extent are you speaking to people who know your world? To what extent are you not? The two things I would implore of you, though, number one is do not ever listen or this issue to an editor whose only goal is to make your work as broadly appealing as possible. Okay? Because that is like that's how they work. That's how they think. So it's like, well, you didn't, you, you, like, you didn't explain what this word meant. Should we do a footnote? Should we, you know, like, can we, can we, why don't we translate all this? Like, no, don't put Spanish words in there. Some people don't speak Spanish. Let's put it in English. Let's um, let's explain. You know, you mentioned this kind of Korean robe. Like, like, can you can you put in parentheses what it is? Now there are editors, there are really good editors out there who are not gonna do that. Um, against if it's against your own instincts. Do not listen to people who are trying to universalize your thing, who are trying to make it the most accessible to the most number of people, unless that's something you want, right? Um, the other thing that I would implore you to do, and this is on the craft level, is to keep it consistent, to make that decision like my student did, and to say, okay, she is, in this case, because of what they want this book to be, she is speaking to a non-Muslim peer. That is what this book is, and I'm gonna stay consistent to that throughout, and I'm gonna own that decision, okay. You can do sort of, you know, you can do glossing, and by glossing I mean kind of giving a little definition or an explanation of, you know, context sometimes. Um, you can do it stealthily. You can do it head on. There, I'm gonna give you an example here from Louise Erdrich. Um, she's writing not um, only about, you know, she's writing culturally about um, Ojibwe, which I think she's very much writing for her own community, but also she has, the knowledge that she's writing beyond that in many, many ways. She's also writing about the year 1839, which I was not personally alive for, I don't know about you. Um, so she's, she's treating this head on, she's just explaining. Outside an isolated Ojibwe country trading post in the year 1839, Mink was making an incessant racket. She wanted what McKinnon had, trader's milk, a mixture of raw and distilled spirits, rum, so sorry, I was supposed to say rum, red pepper and tobacco. She is explaining everything. She's doing all this work to orient us. Here's, we are outside an isolated Ojibwe country trading post. It is the year 1839. Here is what trader's milk is. What's interesting is the only person thing she doesn't explain to us is mink. It's almost like we're, we're meeting her, we're supposed to know already, we're kind of being invited into her, but the rest of the world is gonna be explained to us. We can also do this by simply treating us as if we know what is going on. So I think this um, short story, Garments, to Mima Anam, I think this is a wonderful intro. Um, the story is set, I believe, in Bangladesh. I could be wrong. So the story opens, one day Mala lowers her mask and says to Jasmine, my boyfriend wants to marry you. Jasmine is six shirts behind, so she doesn't look up. After the bell, Mala explains. For months now, she's been telling the girls, yeah, any day now, me and Dulal are going to the Kazi. They don't believe her. They know her boyfriend works in an air-conditioned shop. No way was he going to marry a garments girl. Now she has a scheme, and when Jasmine hears it, she thinks it's not so bad. 
Okay, do you hear the difference in the way Louise Erdrich is addressing us, the ear for that Louise Erdrich story and the ear for Tamima Anam's story? You hear that? So we are being addressed like people intimately familiar with this culture. At the same time, do you see the, the stealthy ways that she's explaining things in here, right? So six shirts behind might not make sense to you in that moment, but then we get down to, no way was he going to marry a garments girl. Oh, okay. If I, if I didn't get it at first, I get it now. I have that little bit of help, because she is recognizing, I think, in that moment, the difference between actual audience and ideal narrative audience, right? The, between the way we've been cast and who we likely are as her readers. Um, this can also be done horridly, this glossing. Um, my husband and I died laughing in the car. We were listening to, um, my kids had on like an American Girl story CD, which are lovely. Um, and the thing is they're written for children. So in the context, it made perfect sense. We just couldn't stop laughing. And the, the line was something about um, this, this girl bit in, she, someone offered her a knish. It's like 1890s New York, I think. Um, she, and she was offered a knish. And she says yes, and then she bit into the small round potato dumpling, savoring the cheesy filling. <laughs> right? Like, there's maybe a more elegant way to do that. Okay, all right. Um, okay. Um, I want to talk for a minute about my own decisions in my last novel, um, just to give you kind of an inside view on how an author might think through this. Um, my last novel, those of you who don't know, it's called The Great Believers, and it's largely set in 1980s Chicago. Um, it's in the gay community in Boys Town. It's a very specific neighborhood. And I'm third person, but my point of view character knows that world very, very well. I also have sections that are much shorter sections that's a woman in contemporary Paris looking back on that time. So I was realizing early on as I was drafting that I had wild inconsistencies. There were times when I was explaining what a certain bar was, and then times when I'd mention a bar and not explain what it was. There were times when, um, you know, I wasn't going so far as to explain, you know, the 80s, or to explain, like, well, here's how gay culture works. It wasn't that. Um, but it was, you know, Chicago, it's very specific. And I know that there's gonna be a lot of distance between, for m the majority of my readers, between intimate knowledge of Boys Town Chicago in the 1980s and where they are. I wanted to address people as if they knew that world. I did not feel like it was gonna work for my book to address people as if they were outsiders coming in. Um, so the decision that I made, and this was complicated, was I'm talking to you in those sections like you are someone who does intimately know 1980s gay Chicago. You just don't know these people. So when someone new comes in the room, I'm going, that's Teddy, he's a philosophy student, he blah, 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 this is what he's like. But then when they mention hanging out at Berlin, which is a bar, I'm just mentioning Berlin, and I'm gonna give you context clues if I need you to know what kind of bar that is. Um, I'm gonna mention, um, you know, does that make sense? Okay, all right. Meanwhile, I had a very different decision to make in my other sections. I had um, this woman who, um, you know, she's looking back from 30 years later. And the problem was, um, if I had her explain too much, if there was too much explaining going on, you were gonna learn everything about the 80s before you should. 
So in those sections, I had to treat the reader as someone who already knew everything she knew. So that I mentioned something like, well, I just talked, you know, that she just talked to this person last month. I'm not saying, and he was still alive, but other people weren't. And the, the thoughts that, you know, that might have completed that context, it was basically a move that allowed me to withhold information. Um, another example of that closeness allowing withheld information, I'm going to skip the Jeff Dyer here just for time. I want to talk about Kazuo Ishiguro. Never Let Me Go, and I won't give this away for those of you who haven't read it, please read it. Um, it's about a very dystopian scenario, and we don't quite know what that is for a long way into the book. He holds off on it. Um, this is the opening of it. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to talk about it. My name is Kathy H. I'm 31 years old, and I've been a carer now for over 11 years. That sounds long enough, I know, but actually they want me to go on for another eight months until the end of this year. That'll make it almost exactly 12 years. Now, I know my being a carer so long isn't necessarily because they think I'm fantastic at what I do. There are some really good carers who've been told to stop after just two or three years. And I can think of one carer, at least, who went on for all of 14 years despite being a complete waste of space. So I'm not trying to boast. Okay, first of all, general vibe on this. Is she talking to us like people who know what she's talking about or do not know what she's talking about? Yeah, right. Like, she's throwing these terms around, and she's like, now, you probably think that's a really long time. Like, I have no such opinion because I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Um, there's something off about it. We can tell that the Kathy H and then the repetition of the word carer, like, something's a little weird here. But it's that closeness to the, the it's that, you know, if, if she were trying to talk to us like people who didn't know, then why is she not filling us in on what the hell is going on here? Talking to us like we know allows her to withhold that information and keep us in the dark for like 50 pages at least, right? A really long time. Um, there is, this is going to become, um, besides, you know, I think that the two issues where this is most on people's minds as they compose are when we're writing to represent a certain culture to readers who we imagine might go beyond that culture and when we're writing about imagined worlds, fully imagined worlds, fantasy, sci-fi, slipstream, speculative worlds, you have to make decisions in those cases. You can't just kind of ignore it and let it slide by. Generally, when we're writing about the surreal in any way, we generally tend, the instinct seems to be, to talk about it as if it's real so that it helps you buy into the scenario, right? If I say, once there was a planet a really long away from here and there were seven levels of wizards, and uh, that's one way of doing it. But if I just start talking to you by saying, you know, Glorb was a seventh level wizard, then you're like, yeah, I know about the seventh level wizards. And you're, you're, you're buying in, in a way, right? You've entered into that contract. Um, one of the last things I'll say here, as I'm wrapping up here, um, is that those of you writing about anything where you know that there is a distance between actual audience and the ear, the narrative ear of the story, um, I think we always need to think about the density of words and details we introduce that will not be instantly understood by everyone. I, my cultural background is Hungarian. If I were trying to write a narrative about Hungarian stuff and I threw like 15 Hungarian words into that first paragraph, 
you guys will be out, right? Now, that's a decision I need to make. Is it more important to me that I'm writing to other people who know this culture? Is it more important to me that it goes beyond that? That's a different thing, but I need to know. And density of those words and those details is actually, I think, a really important thing to think about. So if we're thinking about, for instance, sci-fi fantasy world, um, if I tell you that seven Tagulians are sitting around a lodestar blinch with plickets of dogsweed waiting for the Grand Katsi to show up, okay, like, I don't have a single thing in there for us to picture. Like, they're, they're what now? Who? If I, if I just spread it out, right? If I tell you seven people, and later you'll learn that they're not normal people, are sitting around a tavern with pints of ale waiting for the Grand Katsi to show up. Still don't know what the Grand Katsi is, but that one, we can focus on that in isolation, right? Like, ooh, this is different, there's something unusual here, but we're not awash in things we don't understand. Um, and so I think that so often as we're trying to figure out, you know, am I compromising what I'm writing about by watering it down, by glossing things for people? Am I compromising my vision of my fantastic world? Am I compromising my culture? Am I compromising someone else's culture? By explaining, by glossing, by pandering to the readers who are not the ones that might be the narrative ear of the story, um, you can find a compromise there in simply the density and pacing, the way you introduce information. Sometimes it's through giving us an outsider character, Harry Potter, right, walks in, we learn everything with him. Sometimes it's simply by the slow introduction of information. What I want to say to wrap up, and I was wishing there were time for questions, and since there isn't, I hope that you guys will come and like bug the hell out of me with questions later. That would, be, that would make me really happy. I will leave you with two things. One is so often something heady and theory-ish like this, um, it can be a little too much to head straight back into your own work thinking about it. And what I would invite you to do, anything you learn this week or about your writing in general as there's some kind of new uh, theoretical thing floating around, notice it first in your reading. Really become a bit of a, an, of a scientist on this. As you read, to what extent you know, we looked at that Curtis Sittenfeld in a very different way than we might normally read that opening, right? What, is, what am I presumed to know? What am I not presumed to know? Is it consistent? Maybe this author's doing it really well or maybe not. Um, why has the, what have I been cast as? Is there likely a difference, a distance between the majority of actual readers and the role, the ear we've all been cast as as we enter into this story? If so, how is the author dealing with that? Is there glossing going on? Are we treating it like Louise Erdrich did? Just here's the story, I'm gonna give you all the context. Are we entering it into, into it on the sly, hit the ground running like to me, mom, mom, right? Um, and as you notice those things, that will give you the finely sharpened tools that you can take and put into your own writing, okay? I wanted to leave you with something super inspirational, but instead I'm gonna read you one of the weirdest narrative points of view that there is, which is Winnie the Pooh. Listen, this is what he's doing. Winnie the Pooh is so fucked up. This is what he's doing. This is like how it goes. He crawled out of the gorse bushes, Winnie the Pooh, brushed the prickles from his nose and began to think again. And the first person he thought of was Christopher Robin. Was that me? Said Christopher Robin. Remember Christopher Robin sitting there listening to the stories in an awed voice, hardly daring to believe it. That was you. Christopher Robin said nothing, but his eyes got larger and larger and his face got pinker and pinker. So Winnie the Pooh went round to his friend Christopher Robin, who lived behind a green door in another part of the forest. What the hell? <laughs> like, that is so postmodern. That is so messed up. I don't even know what to do with it. I just wanted to read it to you guys. Okay, anyway, thank you very, very much. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Tin House Live. You can find more of Rebecca Mackay's work at RebeccaMackay.com. And you can also see her putting the ideas she discussed today out in the world into action in a recent New York Times book review, where she reviews and analyzes the book Man of My Time through the lens of what she discussed today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Between the Covers, whether as a first-time or long-time listener, consider supporting the show. Find out the various rewards and perks of being a supporter, from bonus audio to back issues of Tin House Magazine to opportunities to add to your tote bag collection to becoming a Tin House early reader, getting new releases months before they're available to the general public. Find out about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Den House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops, for helping make the podcast run as smoothly as it does. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.